Hello there. Surprise I didn't even let you knock? Well, my friend, you are an expected guest. Hmm, come on in. You are the cornerstone of our little rendezvous. Truth be told, I am no psychic. One of our permanent guests saw you wandering on the road. What was he doing out there? Nothing, I suppose. There's always someone or something out there in the woods. Watching. You really should stick to the road, you know. But I don't think you came all the way here to listen to me ramble about old trees and mud. Come, sit closer to the fire. I've got a little something special lined up for you. Some of our permanent guests wanted to share their personal stories. I do hope you enjoy them. For reasons that elude me completely, people like to celebrate the day they arrived into this world. For many, it's a festivity of life. But for others, it's a step closer to their final destination. Death. When a little boy decides to throw a party for himself on his birthday, he'll learn the hard way that his birth was nothing more than a reminder of how fleeting life truly is. I don't celebrate my birthday anymore. Not because I feel like I'm too old, I've grown out of it, or anything like that. But because the last one I had a party for, I almost didn't survive. I was 11, just old enough to know exactly what I wanted, but not nearly old enough to know <laughs> exactly what I wanted. Like I said, I was 11. My birthday was only two days away. I'd been planning for weeks how I wanted my birthday to go. I was really into pirates that year. Why? I'm not exactly sure. The idea of independence and just living among the waves in search of buried and sunken treasure thrilled me. Having a subordinate crew beneath me was... It's always... I don't know. I always appreciated a chain of command. Be it in the military, movies about gangs, especially pirates. Pirates had their own laws. Had their own plans. Let nobody tell them what to do. Maybe that was the reason I liked them so much. You see, I was a push-around kid. At school, I took so much crap off from everybody. There wasn't any difference between the students and the faculty either. I tried to tell my parents about it time and time again, but among their work schedules and whatever it was that grown-ups did back then, wine parties? Maybe? I don't know. They were away from the house all the time. But they left me in good hands. My big brother. He didn't ignore me. But we were in two completely different schools, so he couldn't help me when I needed it either. He just dropped me off in the morning and picked me up in the afternoon. When we got home, though, it was always about me. I mean, after homework. I do not miss homework. So, two days before my birthday party, my big bro asks, did mom and dad ever order you party stuff? I shrugged. He had a look of confusion on his face. Come on, dude. How can you not know? I looked at him and said the first thing that came to mind. 
I haven't seen either of them in like a week. I doubt they even know my birthday is coming up. He leaned in, lightly punching my arm. Don't say that. He laughed. Okay, I'll find out. What do you want? Pirates? I stared with half-shut eyes at my brother in half-disbelief and half-non-belief that he couldn't remember. Then I looked around my room. He followed to notice all the pirate memorabilia covering my walls, with the exception of the calendar, which had my birthday reminders all within a foot and a half of it, marking the day when I would finally be 12. <sighs> got it, he chuckled, removing himself from the bed. I got it. He repeated, leaving the room completely. The phone was just inside the kitchen, which was just outside my room, followed by the singular speed dial button being pressed. I listened. Hi, is Pat around? Yeah. It's her son. <sighs> he sighed. Yeah, the oldest one. Hey, hey, mom. He became aware of his volume lowering his voice. Hey, did you get Bruce's party schedule? You're kidding, right? Seriously? How could you forget your son's birthdays this week? No. No, Mom. It's fine. Okay, yeah. I'll call Dad. Maybe he was more helpful than you are. He hung up the phone with a bit of agitation. He pressed the next speed dial button. He followed with a sequence of button mashing. Dad worked in an office, so he had an extension line. Yeah, Dad. Dad, it's me. Who else would call you Dad? Yeah, not funny. He started talking quietly again. Almost like he knew my parents were failures. Thinking back on it, maybe I should be more respectful. Hey, you ever order Bruce's party stuff? No. Dad. You're just as useless as Mom. Slam! He threw the phone down, harder this time. Bruce? He called from down the hall. I waited a few moments, then stepped out. Yeah? I tried to say without letting my chin quiver too much. Hey! He seemed super excited. Hey, Mom and Dad ordered it about a week and a half ago. They just need me to call and confirm it. I smiled. I knew he was lying. I heard everything he said prior to hanging up the phone. So, I smiled. I headed back towards mom and dad's room. Hey, he called from behind me. Where are you going? Um, I thought real quick. I gotta pee. I looked back at him and he nodded, turning back to the phone. I rushed to their room, closed the door slowly, and picked up their phone, just in time too. Th th thanks for c c calling party peoples. We're our d d dream is to make yours c c c c come true. The voice was of a teen, about my brother's age. What w wish can I c c c c c <sighs> He sighed and tried again. What wish can I grant you today? Tom? My brother recognized the voice. Or maybe the stutter. You work at party people? The voice laughed with heavy anxiety. Yeah, my folks 
own it. Who, who, who is this? Hey man, it's Sonny from school. Oh, oh, yeah. Hey dude, what's up? Hey, my little bro is turning 12 in a couple days and my retarded parents forgot to set something up. Do y'all have pirate stuff? I could hear the Lumi echo in the phone. I wondered if he could hear it too. If so, he never said anything. The voice hummed. P pirates My brother repeated. Yeah, pirates. We have John... We have Johnny Depp stuff. Nah. <laughs> Sonny laughed sarcastically. Wait. Really? Yeah. Just like... Wait, wait, wait. No, just a c c c cardboard c c cutout. Yeah, we 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 ha have p pirates. Do you want just c c c char characters, c c cake, or the the c c c c combo? Send all you got. Oh, oh okay. H how will you you be paying for this t t t today? Credit card. I sneaked out of the room while he was reading the credit card number off to the guy. I was so happy, but I had to contain it from fear that my brother would know that I knew. The next two days dragged by, but when my birthday came, I couldn't have been more excited. My mom and dad were both there. I, I know, that doesn't sound like something I should have to say. They tried that day too. Mom made me a cake and dad was blowing up balloons. They didn't float. Maybe I was just ungrateful. <laughs> Maybe they deserved it. But at least they did try. Because it was my birthday. Because they didn't have to work. Maybe both. Sonny kept staring at the clock. My parents didn't seem to notice too much. But I did. It was 11.05 when the doorbell rang. The friends that were going to come had already made it about an hour earlier. There weren't many, so their parents stuck around for the entertainment to arrive. And at 11.05, the entertainment arrived. <laughs> Dressed in gnarly pirate costumes, it was a group of five. The captain strode in first, swinging his throat cut over the heads of the parents and laying it over his shoulder, marching, eyeballing my guests. Next were the first mate and two buccaneers, waving and popping off the plastic bang guns, kicking their knees high in the air. Finally, and for some reason, there was a mermaid, decked out from her shimmering tail to the seashell bikini. But she was no little mermaid. She was just as dirty and rank as the pirates. Still, true to character, she squirmed over on her hands through the doorway. The pirates yo hold and are hard all the way through the living room. Where be the salty birthday dog? The captain growled. He pulled out his pop gun, shiny as a real one, and spun in place. The room shuddered with solitary giggles for parents. The children were a little frightened, myself included. Which is why I was slightly apprehensive when they called for me. Arg! claimed the first mate. When the captain asks you questions, 
He deserves an answer. The parents still laughed. Mine shoved me to the captain. Ah, he gleamed. Ye be the scoundrel. What's the matter? Catfish got your tongue? The mood was heavy. These guys were really into their roles. Then the mermaid approached me. She started to sing. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, you scallywag. Click. I heard the front door lock. One of the pirates twisted the deadbolt. Odd, I thought. Happy birthday to... Bang! I fell. My chest felt like it was collapsing. I heard screaming and watched through fuzzy eyes as the other kids scrambled. The parents didn't move much until the mermaid drew a small knife from her waist and stabbed one of them in the throat. Bang! Bang! Flashes and cries surrounded me as I faded. I woke up several days later in the hospital. I could hardly breathe, and my chest remained heavy. Nobody was around until the nurse came in. She called for the doctor as soon as she realized I was awake. I couldn't speak. I could hardly hear. I wasn't cognitive enough to make anything out. I stayed groggy and unable to be awake too long. It wasn't until I was able to get out of bed that anyone explained what happened and why nobody was there with me. Do you remember what happened, son? The doctor stood at my side, not looking up from his clipboard, but every so often. I shook my head after trying to speak, but words hurt. He put his board down and with a sigh began. <sighs> a few weeks ago at your home, you were shot by an escaped convict. Your mother, your father and brother, along with a few more of your house guests, sustained gunshot and knife wounds. Three of your friends didn't survive. Only one of their fathers walked out of the house with little to no injuries. He was an off-duty police officer. Fortunately, they carried their weapons all the time. But two children, not including yourself, are stable. Only three adults survived. Sadly, your mother, your father, or your brother did not. I'm sorry, son. I shut down. I fell back out of consciousness. From the day I left the hospital, I was placed in a foster home. A lot of the time it felt like my real home, always being ignored and forgotten. Unless somebody needed to blame me for something, then <laughs> I was the center of attention. I only miss my brother. He was the only variable between that life and this one. I never spoke to anyone about why I was put in that place. Those pirates, those pirates, were all escapees from the state prison which was located just one county over. Serendipitously for them, the party people's van was heading to my house as they met the road. They were all killed by the cop at the party. It wasn't until they were all dead could he get back to his car and radio for help. Well, I'm 20 now and I don't celebrate my birthday anymore. Usually, I just take the pills and <laughs> sleep it away. 
I hope after every dose that it'll be my last. Then maybe <laughs> I can celebrate my birthday with my brother. But as the years pass, I'm beginning to think the doctor is giving me placebos. I just go to sleep. I, I just don't want to wake up anymore. I don't want to wake up anymore. Maybe this dose will do it. Happy birthday, dear Scallywag. Happy birthday. I don't think there will ever be a time where we stop chasing the unknown. It's a will, an itch to grasp out in the endless black. In our innocence, we forget that there are forces beyond us, powers crafted to haunt and to linger. We were only 12 years old when we lost Christopher to the wilds. We were brought up in Bracton, a small town of only 122 residents. I don't expect that you've heard of it. We were young and reckless, and as is wont of young boys, eager to prove ourselves. Bracton found itself nestled between fields of corn and acres of woodland, the latter of which led onwards to the snow-peaked mountains which dominated the skyline. As with every small town which wanted to keep its youth in check, the woodlands were home to many legends and stories. Most involved the supposed warlocks and witches of the mountain who came down to snatch children who strayed too far into the woods for their own vile ends. Of course, looking back, I can see why they wanted to keep children out. The woods were a myriad of disused mining pits and forgotten bear traps. No parent in their right mind would want their children wandering through there alone. I also now know the truth behind those wild stories. Naturally, being 12 years old, we wanted to prove ourselves to each other. Myself, James Ban, and Christopher Helster took it upon ourselves to camp out within the forest on Halloween. Cliché, I know, but when you are young, these kind of things are what scare you. We ventured as far into the woods as we dared, leaving behind the view of Bracton through the trees. We set up camp and awaited nightfall. We spent the night huddled in our tent, scared witless, but each of us steadfastly refusing to leave. It was a quiet and cold night, with only the occasional howl of the wolves near the mountains to be heard. Daylight came eventually. We emerged from the tent grinning, knowing that we could go back to town and tell the other kids about our night in the woods, with additional embellishments, of course. James and I eagerly packed our bags, more than ready to head back to our own beds, but Christopher lingered. He told us not to worry about the tent, that he would pack it up and bring it home in a bit. This didn't strike us as odd. Christopher lived with his abusive mother and was prone to delay going home. We gave him this moment and traipsed back to town. Later that evening, there was a frenzied knocking at the door. It was Christopher's mother, swaggering with the day's booze. She shouted and screamed, cursing my name for leading him astray. My own parents sent me to bed and placated her. The police arrived in town and searched the woods as far as they could. The tent was the only sign that we had been in the woods that night and it was emptied of its contents. There were no tracks, and the tracker dogs could not pick up any scent. After a week of searching, there was no sign of Christopher. 
they never found him. Speculation about his disappearance slowly turned into an accepted fact. Bracton accepted that Christopher had run away to escape his mother's drunken and often violent outbursts. James and I dwelled on it for a long time, but even that faded after we both grew up and moved away. Still, every now and then, I could feel Christopher skitter through my mind, not dredging up his full memory, but maybe a quiet echo of his infectious laughter. One night I was disturbed by a nightmare, waking me in a cold sweat. It was of Christopher, and his laughter had turned to screams. From that day on, my memory of his laughter refused to be pulled from the depths of my mind, instead being replaced by that hideous, sleep-shattering scream. I can only assume that James felt it too. I was in my mid-twenties when I received an email out of the blue. I was working in the city, and kept a busy schedule of meetings, but made an effort to meet with him. We exchanged news or pleasantries as one does when meeting an old friend, but an odd air hung between us. Deep down, we both knew why we had met. James confessed to me that Christopher had been playing on his mind. Recently, he had dreamt about him, about the day he went missing. His eyes brimmed as he spoke of the screams. I confessed the same. We discussed his disappearance at length and decided that for our own sanity, we needed to put our own ghost to bed for good. We both booked time out from our respective workplaces and headed back home to Bracton. Living in the city had spoiled us both, and the simple town seemed a far cry from the home we once remembered. Bracton was mostly empty, its youth grown up and left, leaving only the old to remain and wither. The population had dwindled to a meagre 33. Both of James's parents had died, and mine had long since moved into a retirement home in California. The old houses still stood although their dormancy had allowed an element of rot to settle into them. James and I moved into his parents' old house for our stay. The town was no longer the carefree place we enjoyed as children. The friendly neighbours now kept to themselves, only uttering a greeting if forced, and the woods themselves had lost their vibrancy in life. The trees now stood as stark skeletons of their former shapes, their leaves shed from their limbs and carpeting the ground below. James and I confided in each other about the changes which Bracton had brought, and immediately a dim light was cast on our trip. We rested for the first couple of days, planning out our actions. Our first thought was to go to the site of where we had made camp all those years ago, and then out into the wider woods towards the foot of the mountain. We pulled over the maps of the local area, planning each day effectively. We came to the decision that if we had found no trace of Christopher by the end of the week, and we would settle for the story that he had run away. Torrential rain greeted us on the first day of our exploration. I kept my coat wrapped tight around me as we trudged through the graveyard of trees. The bleak skies blackened our moods. There was little talk as we tracked across the barren woodland. My heart was heavy with memories of the day as they came flooding back. I had to force each foot forward, not sure if I wanted to find what was left of Christopher or nothing at all. I'm not sure if either was the answer I wanted. The old campsite was unrecognisable by the two outcrops of rock which we had pitched the tent between. The great old oaks had rotted and fallen, countless bugs feasting upon their corpses. We lifted what we could, checking under every rock and branch in an attempt to find some clue that was missed that day. We found nothing. James and I looked at each other as the rain continued to batter us a defeated grin spreading over our faces. 
What was this madness that we suddenly decided to do? Did we really think we were going to find Christopher out here in the woods? Wolves howled in the distance. James shifted nervously and I joked about him becoming too much of a city boy. He held a hand up to silence me. Amongst the wolf howls was another cry, something weaker and far more emotive. We both hesitated. Our minds travelled back to the tales of our youth, to the witches and the warlocks of the mountain. Our search of the old site had given us nothing of use, then the noise sounded again, this time louder. It was a mournful cry, not like anything we had ever heard, and something about it drew our attention. The noise of the wolves died away, we steadied our resolve and set out towards it. The trek was long and arduous. As children, we had never ventured beyond where we had camped that fateful night, and I knew of no adults that ever spoke of going any further if they did. The terrain became rougher, undulating with increasing frequency. My feet rubbed within my boots and the wet caused my trousers to chafe against my thighs. Through this pain I marched on, the cry becoming ever clearer, ever more haunting. The mountains now loomed above us. We spoke of turning back as there was a point where the sound seemed to never come any closer. We decided to give it another two kilometers then head back. The sun was relatively low in the sky and we had not prepared for a night expedition. Within the next ten minutes we had arrived at the call of the sound. A large bog stretched out before us, making its way to the base of the mountain. The stench of stagnant water assaulted us, the water thick and black with sediment. The noise had stopped, leaving us with the sound of the rain lashing down onto dead leaves. I have never forgot what we witnessed next. Something moved in the water. At first it was just a ripple, something that could be mistaken for a trick of the eye. Then the body came out. A mournful cry rang out from the floundering body, splashing around with its weakened and frail limbs. I recognised Christopher straight away. I stood with James, slack-jawed, and watched this image of the past writhe around in the bog. He had not grown, still the same person as he was at twelve years old, but his muscle had wasted away, leaving an emaciated form to struggle amongst the muck. Although his eyes were now hollow, he turned his head towards us and gave a blind gaze that tore my soul. He cried out, possibly recognising us, possibly just seeing potential rescue. Perhaps it was just a cry of eternal torment. James was the first to trudge into the filthy water. I followed after him, both of us wading out towards Christopher. His body painted a pathetic picture, crying out in a sorrowful howl while frantically grasping for something to hold on to. We reached out to him. The sorrow and pain that he had held for so long flowed through me, causing me to recoil. James kept his grip firmer. It was no use. Christopher, or whatever it was, crumbled to ash, leaving the dusting of his body to float for a second before becoming subsumed within the vile bog again. I looked at James, neither of us believing what we just saw. More howls of anguish and pain rose around us. Christopher was not the only resident of the bog. Other children burst through the surface, begging for someone to help them. Some of the younger ones, only toddlers who had not yet learnt to swim, thrashed face down the silt-thick water muting their screams. James and I retreated from the bog, the couple of bodies that did grasp us turning to ash as they felt their salvation. The anguished cries chased us back to Bracton. 
When James and I stepped through the door and into his home, I cannot describe the emotions that rocked us. We held each other and wept. Shaken from what had happened, we took the rest of the day to think about our next course of action. When we decided, we knew it was what we had to do. I quit my job in the city and James did the same. We both knew what we saw that day in the bog and we both adamantly refused to allow that infernal place to keep our friend. We moved into James's parents' house permanently and quickly settled back into life in Bracton. It was a bleak existence in comparison to my life in the city, but I knew it was a necessity. There was no doubt that if I carried on my life as if I had never seen what I had witnessed, then that scene of Christopher crying out in the bog would haunt me for the rest of my life. Over the course of several months, we discovered that the abhorrent bog was not a place to be found unwillingly. Several times we set out into the woods, armed with maps and GPS devices, and each time we could not pinpoint the location of the bog. It quickly became apparent that the bog would only be revealed when we could hear the distant cries of those trapped, and only by following the sound could you find it. It was a thing of vile and incalculably dark magic. There seemed to be little pattern to it, and many late night trips were made through the woodland. Although we frequently visited the bog, it became no less harrowing a sight, becoming more and more draining each time. There was more than one time that I feared for my mental state. The remaining people of the town soon learned to leave us to our own devices, and wisely so. We hoarded knowledge of curses, witchcraft and the occult, slowly filling the house with books and trinkets. The house gradually built up a hum of grim energy, conflicting gods and beliefs tussling with each other. We conducted rituals, invoked rites, and summoned those we dared in an attempt to break the curse on the swamp. We awoke gods so long slumbering that even they themselves believed they were dead. Names that I fear to even think about, let alone put to paper. Each time we heard the cries from the bog, we would set out once more into the woods to attempt our latest discoveries in the hope that they would work. We both knew that the dark magic was taking its terrible toll on us, but it did not become truly apparent to me until the summer of 2001. While visiting my parents, all three of us were involved in a car crash. I lived, although my parents did not. I have not forgiven myself for that, as I have little doubt that some of that terrible aura we had invoked in Bracton had attached itself to me. I was wheelchair bound for eight months. I begged James not to venture out into the bog without me. Half of this was guilt, the other genuine concern for him. As the months passed, I took my position as researcher and conjurer, while James was the one to carry out our work at the site. Each time the cries were heard, I would watch him head out into the night, and each time he would return with a little less of himself. Over time, I watched him wither away in front of me, and it was then that I realized the terrible toll that our work caused. Still, we marched on, although now our concern had spread from Christopher to the whole population of the bog itself. It sprawled out of control and threatened to consume us along with them. One day, James returned more tired than usual. I discovered that he had travelled beyond the bog and onto the base of the mountain in an attempt to locate the curse givers. He found their remains scattered in the soil, the ruins of a dilapidated hut surrounding them. Among their possessions were books and trinkets, although they were frustrated with their illegibility. Whatever purpose the swamp had once had was lost to those bones forever. 
Perhaps they ended up within those cursed waters themselves. The witches and warlocks of the mountain had died long ago, even behind a forgotten but active hell. Whether they meant to or not, we would never find out. James died not long after my recovery. His solo expeditions had sapped him of strength, and I held a quiet and brief ceremony for him. It is unfortunate that he died knowing that Christopher was still trapped within the bog, and that our best efforts could not help him. It is a fate I am hoping not to duplicate. In the days leading up to his death, I noticed that his shadow had lessened, as mine has now. I can only assume that strips of our souls were taken in our dark rituals. No light source could cast one, no matter how hard we tried. Then came the other shadows. Two days after James died, I witnessed shadows venturing towards the house at night. At first I thought they only came from the woods, but I watched them arrive from the fields as well. I do not know what they want, all I know is that they still continue to gather, filling the house with their forms. When the sun goes down, I now find them stood shoulder to shoulder in every room. I have come to the conclusion that the sheer number of rituals and rites have created a kind of gravity well of power. Sometimes I dread to think of what we have done. I now sit here alone, with these shadows gathered around me, writing this account with my time-gnarled hands in the hope that someone can learn from it. Believe me when I say we have tried. James and I have dedicated our lives to freeing the prisoners of the bog, and I am afraid that we will both succumb to death before they can be freed. Even now, I feel my life force wane. Each morning I am slower to wake, and the trips to the bog tire me terribly. I am the only resident of Bracton now. All of us have moved or passed away. There will be no one to miss me when I am gone. I have gathered another set of tomes and scrolls in one last hope to break the curse of the bog, and I intend to leave the next time they call. I do not expect to be coming back. I have secured the house, shuttering the windows permanently, and will lock the door firmly when I leave. The creatures and spirits that have been invoked inside this house are trapped within the walls, held in place by powerful and terrible spells. I can only hope that my rune locks will hold. My greatest fear is for my own soul when I pass. I have entered packs with countless deities, creatures of nightmares, and each time they have flayed another piece of my soul for the taking. I have little doubt that darkness is what waits for me on the other side. If you ever stumble across the ghost town of Bracton, I would advise you to drive on. I am not a stupid man, and I assume that some of you out there would indeed come here, looking for adventure, or to see if such terrible old magic is true. I write this warning as if it will save my soul somehow to turn at least some of you back. I know I am powerless to stop such strong wills, but all I can hope is that, if you decide to come, the bog is inaccessible in its silence. Listen to this silence, and know that our lives have not been in vain. Stories are created from the mouths of the keen and the wits of the dreamer. History has taught us that sometimes stories do get out of hand, fueling many myths and legends. But when a handful of employees refuse to set foot on a wing of an old hospital, perhaps it's not out of superstition, but out of true fear.
I worked for two years at the oldest hospital in my city. Several stories rose from the unusual events that always seemed to happen on these sort of places. Some even became urban legends, passed down from generation to generation of employees. For the longest time, I thought they were just a lame attempt to scare newcomers. But I was wrong. On a day much similar to this one, my boss walked out of his office and over to our work area. His eyes moved over from one engineer to the next as if carefully studying each and every one of us. All right, folks, we need to store some equipment over at the 10th floor. Most of the other engineers flinch at his command. Isaac and Victor, the senior service engineers, glanced at each other with a troubled look. Sure thing, I said. Both of the old and grizzled men gawked back at me. As a rookie of the service department, I wanted to stand out. I was tired of them referring to me as the overconfident fletching fresh out of college. Victor sat back down at his workstation. He reached for one of the screwdrivers inside his toolbox and started removing the back of the patient monitor in front of him. He had just finished putting it back together though. Isaac fled to the ICU to grab a hold of a defibrillator. Its calibration was conveniently due that day, or so he blabbered before pacing frantically out of the office. Okay, you'll be in charge of it, Anthony, my boss said. The mission was simple. Move a couple of electrosurgical units to the 10th floor of the hospital. I didn't think much into it until Celia, our aide, climbed in. You're going to the 10th floor? By yourself? She asked me in astonishment. Yeah. Why? Celia fixed her long and unruly auburn hair. Her eyes strayed out to the wall in front of her, and for a moment, I felt like she was no longer with me, but away in a completely different world. Well, you know what they say about that floor. I frowned. What about it? It's cursed. Her hands were now clasped together, trembling ever so slightly. I'd never seen Celia behave this way before. I wouldn't go alone if I were you, she whispered. How come? I ain't afraid of no ghost, I said as I let out a small chuckle, trying to enlighten up the mood. Celia pursed her lips. You should. An unshakable feeling of unease crept up on me. Did something happen up there? You're better off not knowing. I'll let you know when you come back. Why can't you tell me right now? Celia crossed her arms and sighed. Because if I did, you probably wouldn't go up there. You're up, Anthony. The units are here and ready for transport. A voice echoed behind me. My boss stood halfway across the front floor, with one of his hands holding onto a blue card. Four large cardboard boxes laid on top of it. Yes, sir, I said. The elevators were practically at arm's reach from our front door, so my boss lingered outside with me as I waited for my ride. Sir? Yes? What exactly is on the 10th floor? My boss looked up into the ceiling. It's a patient wing. 
pretty much identical to the ninth floor. A pediatric wing. I do know the ninth floor, but I've never been to the tenth. I said, still confused. Every patient wing had, at the very least, a defibrillator in use. These devices are recalibrated every six months and checked weekly in order to make sure that they are working properly. Having serviced every single defibrillator in the building, or so I thought, I couldn't understand how I had never even heard of this floor. It's not in use right now, my boss said as he tapped on one of the fake ceiling tiles. I hear a leak. Do you hear a leak up here? There was such a leak. I couldn't hear it. My mind looped around Celia's words over and over. I'll have someone check this later, my boss said, seemingly defeated after probing half of the tiles on the ceiling. Good afternoon. Where are we going? The elevator operator asked. Tenth floor, please. My boss said as he placed his hand on my shoulder. I smiled back at him, nodded, and pushed my cart inside. There was a knot in the pit of my stomach now, and seeing my boss wave at me like the way you say goodbye to the sailors braving out into the ocean made the tangle even worse. The doors closed, but the storm of thoughts inside my head made me oblivious for a few seconds to the fact that we were not moving at all. Um, are you okay, miss? I asked. The operator's hands hovered just above the button labeled as 10. She snapped her head upright. What? Oh, uh, yeah, 10th floor, right? I just gotta store this over at room 1021. It'll be quick, I said, hoping as well that my words were true. She pulled the bottom ends of her pink vest, which every woman working here had to wear, and pressed the button. You know what happened up there? I asked. Some say a bunch of kids died from a virus, so they had to shut it off. Others mumbled about a nurse who went insane and mutilated them with a pair of scissors. I wiped off the sweat gushing out of my palms and on my jumpsuit. But they're all just made up, right? Sounds like a bunch of nonsense to me, but other operators have experienced some wacky stuff. She said as she hugged her log notebook tighter across her chest. Our world came to a stop and the doors opened once again. The elevator's lights pierced a couple of feet in front of us, but other than that, everything was enveloped in it by a looming darkness. End of the road, she said. I pushed the car out into the black. I took out my phone and activated the flashlight. A long and narrow corridor stretched out from the elevator lobby. You'll have to look for room 1021, she said as she pointed over to the lineup of wooden doors. Thanks. Could you wait for me, perhaps? I promise I won't take long, I pleaded. She shrugged. Sorry, I can't. Got patience to move around, but you can hit the button over there when you're ready. I'll come back for you. Just don't forget about me, okay? I won't, she said as she pressed one of the buttons inside her cabin. She then disappeared behind two slabs of big metal leaving me with no way to go but forward. The whole room felt wrong from the very start. With every step I took, I heard two behind me. I kept telling myself that they were probably echoes from the patient wing below. I whipped my flashlight back a couple of times 
trying to catch a glimpse of my stalker. But the only thing I could make out was a faint glow of the landing indicator on the other side of the hall. As I finally reached the storage room, I held its knob for a moment, dreading what I would find on the other side. Its gold metallic touch made every inch of my skin crawl, but having come this far, I had to see this through. I opened the door. The room was filled with cartoon trains moving along their tracks. They all had a freakishly stretched out grin. In any other place, I would have dismissed them as merely kooky decorations. But up here, their eerie smiles carried a different vibe. I knew that if I turned my back on them, I regret it. I started tossing the boxes inside. They bounced and slid across the room, creating clouds of unsettled dust that clogged the back of my throat. As the third box hit the ground, the shuffling out in the hall suddenly grew into a clover of violent stumps. I hurled the last box inside and slammed the door shut. I then grabbed my cart and raced through the hallway. I ran as fast as I could, desperately trying to create some distance between myself and the stampede closing in behind me. Just at the corner of my eyes I could see shadows, bodies of absolute black that clawed at the walls, ripping the paint apart. All of the room doors I rushed through creaked and bent, as if a large man was pounding on them from the other side. A flurry of whispers assaulted my ears, slurring out words and phrases I could not make out. My legs burned with exquisite pain. I am no athlete, but at that moment, as I ran through the hellish corridor, Pursued by what I could only assume was the devil himself, I became one for a brief couple of seconds. I approached the elevator panel and punched the button with my fist. The landing indicator read 2, an eternity away from 10. As an overwhelming fear engulfed me, I braced myself for my impending death. But nothing happened. Everything around me just stopped. The growls, the bangs, the whispers, they were all replaced by an oppressive silence. I was once again alone, rattling every bone in my body as a pulsing ache started building up in my smashed knuckles. The indicator read six now, and even though I couldn't sense any danger around me, I didn't dare to look. My eyes remained glued to the landing indicator. The numbers kept going up. Seven. Eight. Nine. All of a sudden, I felt a soft tug at the left side of my jumpsuit, similar to the way a child yanks at his mother's skirt when he wants her attention. My eyes tried to get a glance, but my neck wouldn't budge. It was as if my body refused to gaze at whatever horrible abomination stood behind me. Are you okay, sir? A familiar voice asked. My head instinctively turned around. Geez, you don't look very well, Sonny. Did you see a ghost or something? I leaped inside and placed myself at the very back of the elevator cabin. I... I... Uh, fifth, fifth floor, please. You're not going to take your car? She asked joyfully, probably still confused by my trembling limbs and crackling voice. Leave it. Go. Please. I muttered. She stepped out and reached for the cart. Here, see, it's not so. An explosion of screams bursted out of the corridor. Hundreds, no, 
thousands of wails blasted right into our ears. Before I could even warn her, some unseen force cracked the operator's body in half and swooped her off violently into the black hallway. The elevator's doors then snapped shut and I found myself falling in abysmal darkness. According to the chief engineer of security, Mr. Doyle, the suspension rope slid out of the main drive. Two of the safety switches also decided to malfunction at that exact moment. The elevator car slid down five floors before coming to a halt at the fifth floor. Ten minutes later, they were able to deform one of the doors and drag me out, mostly unharmed. Damn old thing. You're lucky that cabin got stuck by the other two switches and the hoistway. Otherwise, you would have ended up at the fourth basement. With most of your bones all gooey, Mr. Doyle said once I was out of the collapsed steel cage. The official story is that the hospital had an elevator malfunction and one of its operators went missing. The facility reported to the authorities that Miss Kendra Whittaker, the operator, didn't go to work that day. I stormed into Mr. Doyle's office once I learned about the lie. There must have been something that got caught in the cameras. We don't keep cameras up there, he said while sipping out of his morning coffee. What? How come? The whole damn place is littered with them. You're saying not a single one is up there. Raises more questions than answers. Mr. Levinson himself ordered so. Bad press, he said as he pointed to the door I had just barged in. Don't go poking around, kid. I'm sorry about what happens to Miss Whitaker, but I'm just doing my job. I couldn't believe it. The owner of the hospital, Mr. Levinson, was covering it all up. I decided to quit my job and head over to the authorities. Someone had to speak up. But Anthony, why now? You're a brilliant worker. What can I do to change your mind? My boss asked visibly heartbroken after I laid him the news. I can't stop thinking about Kendra Whitaker. The operator? She went missing. There's nothing you could have done about it. She didn't go missing. And you all know it. My boss's panicked expression faded away, making way to a sinister glare. What do you mean? Is there anything you wish to report to Mr. Levinson? No. Good, he said, shifting back to a smile and triumphant grin. My employer got his threat across, loud and clear. I still filed my resignation, though. A part of me feared that they would try to silence me. But I played the role they wanted. Whenever they talked about the Ten Floor Legends, I'd sing along knowing very well the sort of evil that hides up there. Maybe that's why I was allowed to walk away. I was hoping that by writing this, I would feel better about it. But I don't. In a way, I don't think I'm any better than my former boss or co-workers staying quiet in order to save my own skin. Still, there's a monster far more wicked than whatever lurks in that forgotten, dust-ridden floor. A demon that hides under human skin, a sly smile, and a soft-spoken voice, and its name is John Nathaniel Levinson.
It's so interesting that in our strife, in our darkest moments, we try to hold on to some hope. It's no coincidence you came here, my friend. You probably have a decision, similar to the one our guests had to follow through. I can't wait to hear the outcome of yours. <laughs> hey, where are you going? Ready to brave out again into the wilderness? So soon? You just got here. Is there no way I can change your mind? Oh my. I should probably go check on that guest. He doesn't seem to be feeling very well. As you might have guessed, bad things can happen out here in the woods. Think about what you've heard tonight. Let it sink in. And don't take your choices lightly. Because some of them might lead you into a road you can't come back from. <laughs> I hope you find your way out there. But if you can't, you're always welcome at the end. Goodbye, my friend. Till we meet again. In this life. Or the next. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, I'd like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales, along with everyone else who has been involved with bringing these horrific tales to life, here at the Cursed Inn. If you are a writer and you think your stories are sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us a demo at thecursedinn at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. <laughs> and don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.